At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Live in the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Bono and Eisen. Tonight on Fast, the three words that sent the Bitcoin brigade wild today. What J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon said about the cryptocurrency that's getting a ton of heat. Plus, sky-high outrage. Southwest shares under pressure as the airline cancels thousands of flights in a nightmare weekend for travelers. We'll break down the full fallout and later ante up the casino stocks hitting the jackpot today. So should you roll the dice on these names? We start off with the oil trade running out of gas, so to speak. The XLE Energy ETF hitting its highest level since January 2020 early on in the session before giving up all of the gains to finish the day in the red. The move comes even as oil prices closed at nearly seven year high. So commodity up, stocks down. What gives? Guy. For now, Melms, and hello, by the way, two more sleeps until opening night for the Rangers, in case anybody cares. And look, kudos to Tim, who's been on this for a long time. And we've been talking about energy as being the place to be now literally for the last six to nine months. I think you continue to be there. All right, so maybe the equities uh, underperformed a bit today. Obviously, the broader market didn't help. And some of the levels that we stopped at make a lot of sense. For example, if you look at ConocoPhillips, COP, that traded up to 78 bucks. That was a three-year high. Goldman Sachs downgraded it, saying basically it's run its course um, 78% since they upgraded the stock. So some of these names maybe have gotten ahead of themselves. I don't think by any stretch the move is over, by the way. OIH, 33% of which is Halliburton and Schlumberger, which report, I think, on the 19th and 22nd, respectively. I think you continue to own those names. I think this energy trade is far from over. Karen, what do you make of this divergence in terms of the uh, equities and the, and the commodity? It's interesting to me. I mean, I don't have a ton of energy exposure. I do have the OIH. And when I was looking at the OIH, its prior high, I think, was, I don't know, 240 or something. Oil itself was a lot lower. So I, I can't fully explain it. I did look at, I don't know if we have the chart of uh, the forward curve. And if we see it over the last month and six months, ago, we can see that we're really in a backwardation. Now, Tim rightly always points out, well, charts can be, you know, the, the curve can be wrong. But it's interesting to me. So that tells me, all right, the commodity is more likely to come in. It's had a much bigger run than the equities. So I, as Guy said, I'm hanging on to my OIH, which is primarily, you know, the two, or not primarily, but a big portion of which is the two big Halbert and Schlumberger, and then a bunch of various others. But um, I, I, we, what we didn't see today the bond market was closed. I'd be interested to see if rates tomorrow are moving up or down with this move in energy. Yeah, it's sort of frustrating to type in 10-year Treasury yield and not be able to get a price when you see a move like this <laughs> in WTI or Brent. <laughs> I know everybody had that reaction today, um, Tim. But here, I mean, is the chart wrong? I mean, is the oil curve chart wrong in your view? 
Well, commodity forward curves across the commodity complex are starting to strengthen. So let's I think they are starting to you know, have more conviction. Uh, Karen brings up a great point on bond markets. And but just to be clear, this this oil price move puts the Fed in a very difficult position, um, because although food and energy tend to be stripped out, um, we've got inflation everywhere. We don't need this here. And you get a place where I think that's something to be considered. Um, you think about, you know, you, you Karen's talked about OAH. Um, and we're having the conversation. Is it a linear relationship between uh, drillers and, and the price of oil? Certainly where they are relative to the price of oil, uh, either historically or even pre-COVID, uh, they should be, you know, it should probably be 25 percent higher. The issue, I think, is the delay effect that comes with rig counts and with actual drilling and where you, you will begin to see a delay between higher oil prices and when you start to see oil companies begin to drill and drill and drill. And North American rig counts are up double where they were. We're 349 or so a year ago, and we're about 700 if you look at the Baker Hughes rig counts. Texas is up two and a half times. So you think about the places where, again, uh, some of the higher technology plays of oil drilling come into play, uh, where some of the renewables, some of the shale, and that tells you uh, where I think prices will continue to go. So um, I think oil is also a canary for the entire commodity complex. We talked last week how coal prices might have been that that canary for oil prices. I think that's while that's true, uh, I think commodity prices are moving higher. And there's a lot of places to take this conversation. But clearly, petrochems, chemical prices, Mm -hmm. shutdowns because of labor, um, because of supply shortages, you name it. Yeah. I mean, another place to take the conversation is is green energy, because that was up too today. Um, Bono, and I know you're spotting the action in TAN, uh, the solar ETF, up almost 4% um, for most of the day. So what do you mean? I mean, we have had this conversation about greenflation, about the, the change to renewable energy sources that are actually causing inflation on the fossil fuel side of things. And here we are in a position where we are seeing overall both headed higher. So, so the previous uh, panelists talked about correlation, right? So if I'm looking at uh, the actual commodity and I want something that's highly correlated to that, I'd probably be looking at the integrated or the EMPs. And you can see that XOP has more clearly mimicked the, um, mimicked the actual commodity than, say, OIH or some of the other service names. And then taking it you know, as more of a corollary to the green energy, as you mentioned, I would say you, you would expect to see this rally somewhat in tandem as the, the, the base energy costs start to elevate. You're going to start to look for substitutes as we see supply constraints um, and everything from natural gas to the pump and everything else, you're, you're going to look for an alternative. And I think you're seeing that kind of play out today in the price action that we saw and everything from charge point to Sunrun to TAN and, and some of the other correlates. I mean, Tim, you first brought up greenflation on the show. And, and of course, this is a notion that's gone around in investment circles for quite some time now. But if you take a look at the actual trade, it's not just fossil fuels and it's not just green. It's also all of the sort of ancillary trade. So the copper that's needed for the alternative energy at a much higher rate than, than other forms. And so where would you want to be if this is the trend that is causing all of this to move higher? Then what is the best place to be in this trade? Right. And, and greenflation is not caused just by, uh, you know, well, I don't think we're just having greenflation as the only source of the move higher in oil prices. And we've talked about some of the dynamics uh, around just labor dynamics, labor, uh, some of the issues, some of the geopolitics, the fact that OPEC and OPEC plus is, is now in a very different position than they were. And by the way, they kind of like where they're at. The fact that Russia now can really continue to squeeze Europe as much as he wants while acting like a friend, delivering uh, potentially more gas through Gazprom when it serves him to get pipelines in his control. So I think there's a lot going on. I do think 
broader materials prices are moving higher. And, and I do think if you listen to the home builders, and we have this conversation all the time on the show too, there, there are places where they're having to substitute materials. You're, you're seeing steel joists being replaced by concrete and, and by cement. And so look at some of the cement producers. Look at a Semex, which has had a tough run. Um, even timber, we've talked about, you know, even before uh, anybody could find lumber future prices on a mark, we were talking about that on the show when they came down 40%. But a company like International Paper, ticker IP, um, and look at that chart, it's just starting to break out again. I don't think there was uh, a lot of high long-term conviction. So investors in these trades as opposed to traders in these trades. Um, no, I, I, you know, we like Freeport. We like steel. I like international paper. I like Gazprom. I think these trades are going to continue to move higher, even though some of them have had big runs. Guy, X gold, X silver. Are we in a situation now where you throw a dart pretty much at most any commodity and it's probably a good trade for the next six months? certainly feels that way. I mean, commodities, we never talk about. Cotton is one of them, coffee. I mean, the short answer, I think, is yes. I think the first thing, the first place people look to, to your point, is gold. They see it's going nowhere, and then they sort of discount the rest of the commodity curve or the rest of the commodities that are out there, some 23 commodities in sort of the GSCI, for example. But I do think we're in this period of time. And just I'll add this just to this conversation. We talk about uh, the market testing new Fed chairs, and I agree with that. I think the energy market is testing this administration right now. And I do believe they're about to make a huge policy mistake, in my opinion. If they start going down this release from the SPR uh, route, that's them blinking. And I think it could be might last for a day or two in terms of what it does to the price to the downside, but it could have really huge mm-hmm. effects going forward. So don't discount the fact that I think the market is trying to test this, uh, this administration as well. I think there is a test. I also think there's still a test, though, um, in the Fed with, with higher oil prices. I mean, this is a test of the Fed's resolve, Karen, right, to, to hold the line about inflation being transitory. I mean, at some point, they're going to see this, this inflation trickle through to corporate earnings, to people's pocketbooks. When you go to a gas station, what do you do with your spare change from the pump? You go in and you buy what, like a Slim Jim or something? Well, I don't, but other people do. Absolutely. Slim Jim, a pack of cigarettes, a soda, etc. You might not do that anymore. And think about all of the, the, if you just sort of expand that and go, you know, think about the department store, or the supermarket and all the other places people might not be spending money. I mean, there is a trickle effect. There is a trickle effect, right? I mean, almost everybody is touched by energy at some level. It's almost impossible to not be. You know, the, the Fed got a little bit of cover with that jobs data that wasn't, you know, certainly wasn't hot. Um, so that maybe gives them a little cover. But I, I still think they want to go in November. I don't think they'll ever find the perfect time to begin what's going to be a very long process. So, I mean, you have to start somewhere. So, I mean, I don't know if this oil is the thing that puts them over. I think they're going anyway. Well, the chart master says oil prices, they're headed even higher from here. Carter Worth of Worth Charting is here with us. So, Carter, take it away. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a phenomenon that's known as momentum, and it can happen in lumber on the way up. As Tim was, and it can happen on the way down. Momentum is clearly on oil side, if you will. We just broke out. Let's look at a few charts and then maybe talk about OIH. So the first chart, what's remarkable, of course, is always sort of the rules of symmetry. While they're not perfect, often they're remarkably precise. Oil, you, we know, peaked in July. Yes, it's 77 a barrel. And then it proceeds to drop uh, almost 20% to 61. And then it has a mirror image rise, 33 sessions down, 
over a period of time back up. And now look at the second chart. We're just, of course, breaking out. We're just now moving above that high of 77, which was set on the 6th of July. And here we are, of course, mid-October. So where could it go? Look at the third chart. This is the channel that's been in effect since the low. Now, not the negative low. We know crude went negative briefly, but the sort of the, the proper low, if you will, for WTI. And there's that breakout. What's remarkable about the low of that head and shoulders bottom and the neckline, it's a $15 barrel width, right? 77 peaks, 62 low. If you were to have a measured move, out of this breakout, it, it takes you to about 92, 93. And that's the top of that channel. Frankly, I think that would be remarkable. I don't think it can probably achieve that. And I think that'll set up a whole host of other problems, but it has to be considered and kept on the court board. So anyway, what about the oil stocks lagging? Um, look at this comparative chart. So this is WTI since the peak in the OIH. Now the OIH is meant to model the old OSX index, which is still in business, of course, but it's an ETF that can be traded. And what do we know? I mean, those are terrible numbers, right? So since the peak in the OSX or the 2014 peak of OIH, um, WTI is down 26% and OIH is down 81. I mean, that's the problem with trades. You can catch a moving longer and then miss it and catch it. At the end of the day, it's not really investing, it's speculating because it sure isn't been good. And now look at the one-year comparative chart. Well, one could say, but look how good it's been, uh, right? I mean, WTI is up 41% over a 12-month period, but OIH is still negative, down 5% over the past year. So yes, it's come up a lot off the low, but over a reasonable period of time, which what investing is rather than just in and out, it's still not really delivering. Final chart, um, OIH is right up against this trend line. And you can see it there to the penny uh, again. Oil was able to get above its July high. Can OIH get there? Presumptively, which means it probably pokes its head up above this downtrend line. Overall, though, I think it's fleeting. And, and that's what I would consider it in terms of investment. All right. Pretty definitive there. Carter, thank you. It's always good to see you. Carter Worth of Worth Charting. Guy, I don't know. Guy or Carter? He makes a pretty compelling case in terms of the, <laughs> the underperformance relative to the commodity here. I'd always defer to Carter without question. And in the fleeting comment, I totally get. But, you know, Tim says this all the time. One of the first things I learned is the, the only solution for higher commodity prices are higher commodity prices. And I don't think we're at that point yet. You know, I get the feeling we're going to test those upward bounds, that upper level that Carter talked about, and we'll see what happens. I think the levered names will do really well in that environment. Names like APA that we talk about, PSX from time to time, I think those stocks will continue to move higher. Maybe the big cap integrated, not so much. But again, these this oil service names, I think in the earnings, again, 19th, I believe, for Halliburton, 22nd for Schlumberger, which, by the way, just got upgraded to J.P. Morgan. I think those names work here. All right. Coming up, sky-high outrage shares of Southwest under pressure following a nightmare weekend for air travelers. We're breaking down the details next, plus bashing Bitcoin. What J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon said about the cryptocurrency today that's getting a lot of attention. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money is back in two. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. 
I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Southwest losing altitude today after the airline canceled more than 2,000 flights over the weekend. Let's get to Phil LeBeau with the details. Phil. Hey, Melissa, Las Vegas, where we are right now, is one of those airports that lost a number of flights over the weekend. But we just checked in with one of the leaders here at McCarran. They said things are starting to improve. Nonetheless, when you look at the cancellations today, they still had 363 flights that were canceled, more than 2,000 since Saturday. The airline does believe that it will get back on firm footing and a regular schedule sometime later this week. As you take a look at shares of Southwest, keep in mind that this all started on Friday night with a weather event in Florida. There was an air traffic control staffing issue. But on Saturday and Sunday, it was all Southwest, and primarily because of staffing challenges. They had crews that were out of place, which raises the question, will they be able to handle a surge in holiday traffic, which is expected as we see COVID cases diminish? The COO of the airline telling employees over the weekend that they will make adjustments if necessary. Mike Vandevan saying, and I quote, we've already made significant reductions from our previously published November and December schedules. And we think if we need, if we think we need to do more, we will. By the way, we checked in with the Southwest Airlines Pilots Union and we said, look, a lot of people are saying maybe it's not official, but unofficially. Are your pilots saying, you know what, we're not happy with the way things are going with the vaccine mandate negotiations or a lack of discussion between management and the pilots, so we're going to call in sick. The airline, or the union, I should say, said, look at the sick rates for pilots. It is no different over the weekend than it was earlier this summer. They say that there is neither an official or an unofficial sick out going on in terms of pilots who are saying, I'm not going to fly because I'm not happy with Southwest management. Nonetheless, a lot of questions for Southwest CEO Gary Kelly. He will be joining us tomorrow morning on Squawk on the Street. You do not want to miss what he has to say. And guys, this is an issue that Southwest is going to have to address as it ramps up its schedule. If they're short on staffing right now, if they couldn't anticipate it ahead of this weekend, are they going to be prepared come Thanksgiving, come the Christmas holiday? These are important questions that the airline is going to have to tackle over the next couple of months. Guys, back to you. Not only that, Phil, but I wonder in consumers' heads when they're making reservations for the holidays, this could be the first time that they've been able to travel in or see family in quite some time. If they're going to trust Southwest will have the flight to get them where they want to go when they want to get there, or if they're just going to go, you know what, I'm not going to trust Southwest, I'm going to go Delta, I'll go American, I'll go some, some other airline. I think the answer to that is this, Melissa. If you are in a market, let's say Chicago, and you've got a number of options other than Southwest, you may think twice about booking Southwest for a holiday trip. But in a lot of parts of the country, in many markets, Southwest is the predominant airline. 
And at the end of the day, you sit there and you say, who's giving me the most choices? Who's giving me the best offer out there? If it's Southwest, I may not be crazy about what's happening with the staffing, but I'm going to roll the dice anyhow and do it because other choices are far more limited. Yep. Phil, thanks. Look forward to the interview tomorrow morning. Phil LeBeau um, in Las Vegas. Uh, Bono and Eisen, where would you go in the airline trade at, at this point? And it sounds like a Southwest problem specifically. It does sound like a Southwest problem specifically. And honestly, uh, something just doesn't quite add up for me. I'm hesitant to put words in anyone's mouth. If it wasn't an official strike or call in or sick day, so be it. Um, I, I just find it hard to believe that these airlines have been essentially gearing up for holiday travel and business travel. You get this influx of, of travel and, and passengers and participants, and then you don't, and you have limited options. Uh, I still like JetBlue in the space as well. I mean, I do like Southwest. This might be an opportunity to buy on weakness, but I really need to hear a bit more from management in terms of what the root cause is, because this just doesn't, it, it doesn't fully make sense to me, and perhaps I just don't understand, but until I get some more information, um, I, I will be staying away. Um, if I get something that actually sounds like a credible answer as to what is causing the operational issues, well, then I think you kind of buy Southwest on weakness. But I think JetBlue is, is a nice alternative. I think Bono makes a really great point in terms of, you know, this is this is the moment that they were all gearing up for. We've got a vaccine. People want to travel. It's going to be the holidays. It's going to be busy, Karen. And this is what happens even before mm -hmm. the holiday rush. Yes, I, I, I like Bono and I'm sort of something just seems a little bit off. Are these problems so specific to Southwest only? I mean, Phil did say that some of their routes, there really are, you know, they are the big player in those markets. But how is this not a problem that would be more broad than just Southwest if it's, if it's a staffing issue? So that sort of makes me concerned for all the airlines. I don't know if they just sort of targeted this one. But um, I don't have any airline exposure. I, you know, I maybe would be looking at uh, hotels, but those aren't cheap either by a lot. Um, so I'm just sort of staying away from the space. But I, something's, something's sort of off. I can't even imagine the managerial nightmare. I'll be interested to see the interview tomorrow, how, how he deals with this. This is yeah. just disaster. Tim, your take. Uh, it will be a great interview. I, I, I guess I'm a buyer of Southwest here. I think they have the best, they have the most loyalty. Uh, they have the most profitability. They have the best balance sheet. Uh, and I think they're well positioned. And I, so again, yes, I, Karen's point is, is, is the one. It's a great point. Um, this is not a Southwest problem. This just happens to be Southwest moment to, to have it manifest itself and, and, and the bright light. And it was a terrible weekend. Um, but I, I, I just think if you look at Southwest, first of all, people think airlines have had a brutal year. Southwest has performed in line with the S&P this year. If you look at the chart, I think, you know, outside of today's move or take that Jets ETF, um, looks like you're, you're breaking back, uh, challenging this 100 days. So, again, the, the longer term moving averages are, have turned positive. You're getting to an uptrend here. Uh, and I think the, the bigger issue for airlines, uh, I think, is it may, in fact, even be energy, maybe part of that A block. Um, but I, I like Southwest Airlines here. I'm buying a weakness. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Some crypto trash talk. J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon calling Bitcoin worthless. But that's not stopping the crypto from surging. Plus, a big call in the fintech space. Morgan Stanley getting bullish on SoFi. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. 
and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Bitcoin hitting a fresh five-month high today, topping 57,000 for the first time since May. It's now just about 11% away from its all-time high, but not everyone is convinced by this breakout. Listen to what J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon said about Bitcoin earlier today. I personally think that Bitcoin is worthless, but I don't want to be a spokesman. I don't care. It makes no difference to me. I don't think you should smoke cigarettes either. You know, but now it comes into like, okay, that's, JB, now JP Morgan. I our clients are adults. They disagree. That's what makes markets. So if they want to have access to buy or sell Bitcoin, you know, we, it's hard, we can't custody it, but we can give them legitimate, as clean as possible access. JP Morgan's wealth management division began offering access to Bitcoin funds earlier this year. Karen, I don't know why I'm going to go to you first, but I will go to you first. It's interesting <laughs> oh, that, okay. you know, he, he said, uh, you know, I, I say don't smoke cigarettes. It's an interesting example to pull out of the air when we're talking about Bitcoin cigarettes. Yeah, you know, he's had this opinion for a while. I don't know if you remember, I think it was at a Delivering mm -hmm. Alpha conference maybe two years ago where he said Bitcoin is a fraud. And that was at around, I don't know, 5,000 maybe. And then walked that back. I mean, you know, Jamie and I can't agree on everything, just, you know, most things. I don't know that this is, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not so pessimistic as he is on Bitcoin. I'm not really sure what this most recent run-up was about, perhaps it's rising rates and the idea of, well, maybe, you know, the U.S. balance sheet really is going to get out of control. And if that's the case, the whole fiat currency uh, weakening, which is one of the central points of Bitcoin, that I think might be part of it. But it's also one other interesting thing is happening, though. A lot of the other cryptocurrencies aren't really doing particularly well. Ether's doing well, but then there's a bunch of them, Solana and... Um, and Cosmos and uh, Chainlink, others that have really not done well at all in the last few weeks as, as Bitcoin's had this run. I'm not sure why that is. They had huge runs going up. But all that having been said, Jamie and I are going to have to just agree to disagree on this one. <laughs> like a lover's quarrel. Um, <laughs> the one, the, the cryptos that Karen had mentioned him, those are the ones typically tied to believing, you know, for DeFi or decentralized finance sort of oriented right. cryptocurrencies. Do you think there's a link here? Well, I, yeah, again, I, I just would go back to JP Morgan and say that they're not in the business of being first in almost anything right now. And, and, and they're the most powerful financial institution in the world. I think Jamie Dimon is one of the most talented executives. I don't have the same uh, the, the same crush Feelings. that Karen does. I, I just think, uh, <laughs> well, I, I put it this way. I, I, he's he's you know, I thought that was a very deft sidestep of what he thinks going on with Bitcoin prices for a guy that's, you know, I think it was September 17th, 2017, he called it a fraud. Um, and at 4,000, it went to 18 to 20,000 within, you know, four or five months. Um, I don't think he needs to make a call on this. I, I think JP Morgan and JP Morgan Asset Management, recognizing this is what their clients want, and this is, you know, on, on some level, just the beginning, this is great for Bitcoin. By the way, he's been great for Bitcoin. 
So I'll leave it at that. I think, you know, efficacy and, and real, uh, I would just say, use cases for um, some of the DeFi uh, tokens out there and platforms is still, uh, I'd say, somewhat away. And, and I think the more important dynamic here is really the institutional adoption and regulation mm-hmm. uh, of, of Bitcoin, but of digital tokens. Let's say you have J.P. Morgan in your portfolio, Guy, and it's a long-term investment, so not necessarily under the fast money moniker, per se. Um, but hearing those comments from Jamie Dimon, let's say you're a young person, you know, you've got Bitcoin, you, you're a believer in Bitcoin, you're a believer in cryptocurrencies and the blockchain. Does this make you even think a little bit that maybe J.P. Morgan is not being headed by somebody who will steward the company towards the future um, of decentralized finance and that other world where things aren't necessarily run through institutions? That's an interesting, that's an interesting question. No, is, is the answer. I mean, I think he's been pretty, hmm. uh, listen, I, I don't know when it was, but he was, make, beginning of this year, he was pretty forthright about the threats to uh, the conventional banking system, the, all the things we're talking about now. And J.P. Morgan, quite frankly, to a large extent, is probably ahead of the curve on that front. Now, his opinions notwithstanding, I think he made that point. Like He doesn't believe in it, but it doesn't mean our clients mm-hmm. don't, and we shouldn't service our clients. And just one point, I don't know if you're a Coming to America uh, fan, Malm, I'm sure you are, but there was a scene when Eddie Murphy went to a St. John's game at Madison Square Garden, and he stood up at halftime and basically said, in the face, and Bitcoin did an in the face today <laughs> to Jamie Dimon because two years ago on the same comments, it trades down 10% like this. Today it went higher. It's a really interesting price movement on the back of those comments. You got a good chuckle from Bonoin, but nobody else, Guy. Uh, coming up, a SoFi surge. <laughs> Shares of the fintech company jumping more than 13% as analysts get bullish on the stock. We've got the details next. And we've got a buzzkill coming your way on AT&T. That stock dropping to its lowest level since 2010. We'll tell you what is investors hanging up on this trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of SoFi topping the tape today and jumping more than 13 percent. Its biggest gain since January. The fintech firm initiated as overweight at Morgan Stanley. Analysts saying SoFi has a powerful revenue growth story and a leg up on competition for the Gen X and Gen Y markets. Bono, and do you like SoFi? Yeah, I do. And I think this kind of like merges well with the, with the last conversation as we talk about DeFi and new fintech alternatives. So, I mean, really this consumer lending business is rather robust. And, you know, while the, the growth targets are a bit aggressive there, I can see a pathway to that. You couple that in with the student loans, right, and, and that um, forbearance that is essentially ending in a couple of months, January of 2022, if I remember correctly, there's really some upside here. So I like the call. I think it's aggressive. It's bold. The stock is kind of traded uh, on the back of that. I think there's more room to run. Um, and I think this is this is exactly what these what or what what we as the younger generation are looking for in terms of financial alternatives. I, th- I think they've hit, they've hit it really on the mark. If I had to, if I said, it, what is the one stock you would buy as a symbol of the f- future of finance? Karen, what would you say? Wow, that is a really hard question. I'm not (laughs) sure if it would be SoFi. One point that the analyst makes and that I think is a a catalyst is the end of the the student loan. Student loans will grow a lot in the coming Mm year uh, versus the pause that they've been in, and that's a good catalyst. I don't understand, though, this, this whole 
fintech valuation where they all want to sort of become a bank and yet they don't trade it anywhere remotely, remotely close to banks. You know, that P.E. multiple is vastly higher. I understand they're growing a lot more, but it seems like that price is already putting in years of growth. So I don't understand the whole giant valuation differential, to be honest. Yeah. Um, Guy, what would you say about the valuation difference? And would you would you pay it? Well, you know, I think SoFi can grow into that valuation. And I think you're also buying management, I think, when you're buying that stock. And I also think there's a level of potential M&A in the name as well. I mean, I I'm said it before. I'll say it again. You know, I think at some point, Anthony Noto could be running one of these banks that we talk about from time to time vis-a-vis an acquisition. You know, SoFi deal would probably in the neighborhood of 22 to $25 billion. In this world, that's not crazy. And they appeal to a certain demographic that some of these older banks can't. So SoFi makes sense. To answer the question you just asked, Karen, I, I would say Blackstone continues to be that name for me. Really? They're finding their way into businesses. Yeah. I mean, I know that sounds stodgy. That's definitely not DeFi or whatever five, but it's interesting five for sure. Just look at the way the stock has performed. It got derailed on the back of some of these China headlines over the last couple of weeks. I think it's going to find its footing again. I was really trying to test Karen's, uh, the limits of her love for Jamie Dimon with the question, but um, let's move on here to a buzzkill. It's pretty unlimited. I know. Buzzkill for AT&T, the stock dropping more than two and a half percent and plunging to its lowest close in more than 11 years. The telecom giant under fire after a Reuters report last week detailed its role in supporting the ultra-conservative OAN network. Comedian John Oliver skewered the company on his HBO show last night. HBO is owned by AT&T. Um, Tim, do you still own this? I do. I do. Uh, you know, I've done a little bit of trading around in the name and it's not the position it was, but it's a big disappointment. I, I think like, the, the whole time Warner and this transaction and this unwind um, is, is something that's been uh, sloppy, painful and, and ultimately you know, has had some confusing elements to it that I think are still not entirely clear. I think the company has a lot of debt. Uh, in an environment where they could have been more tactical. And, and I think in the, the media content space, I still think they, they need to have a role here. Um, I think the company is, it, its core business is not in a bad place. I think the predatory landscape in, in the wireless business is, is uh, not a thing of the past, but I, I would say it's not gone forever, but it is a thing of, of yesterday. And, and mm-hmm. it's a very successful and, and cash generative business. Um, right now, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty there, but it's a name I'm holding. Um, a guy, you actually flagged the action in AT&T. I wish Carter Braxtonworth were still around because I feel like he would have a zinger for the chart. And we just showed the 20-year chart, uh, which shows the stock down 43% over 20 years, granted, but 20 years. Yeah, I'm sure CBW is watching, so maybe he'll call in the hotline. We pointed it out because, you know, while the broader market's effectively at all-time highs, you have a stock that's at a 13-year low, I think, or maybe even more than that at this point. And you know, you look at their rivals, specifically at T-Mobile, which, by the way, that stock has sold off recently as well. But the divergence between the two companies has been severe. And, you know, I don't know what that's a function of, but it's clearly something going on. And I'm not here to cast aspersions necessarily, but we said it for a while. If AT&T can't perform in this environment, when is it? Now, I will say Craig Moffitt of Moffitt Nathanson, he is the mm-hmm. axe in the name. He just raised his price target, I think, from 23 to 28 about a week or so ago. So maybe it's found a floor in terms of where it's trading. But I don't think this is ratcheting uh, significantly higher anytime soon. 
All right. Coming up, the case for housing. Blackstone's Joe Zidal lays out where he is seeing the big opportunity in your own backyard. That's next. Plus, Viva Las Vegas. Auction traders gambling on a big payout for Las Vegas Sands when the company reports earnings next week. We got the details in just a few. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back. Do not miss CNBC's At Work Summit returning this Wednesday, October 13th with a packed lineup of executives from WeWork, Dell, Netflix, and other voices on the future of work. Register now at cnbcevents.com slash work summit. Well, housing stocks under pressure today. Builders like DR Horton, Pulte, Lennar, all finishing in the red. But our next guest says bet on housing. It's his top long-term pick. Joe Zidal is Blackstone's chief investment strategist. His firm is heavily invested in the real estate market, heavily as Probably a polite way of saying that. Joe, great to have you with us. It's been a while. Um, we've all been reading about how Blackstone has been getting deeper and deeper in housing with some big acquisitions just in recent months. And, and I'm wondering, Joe, what, what underpins this um, with rising rates on the horizon uh, and things returning sort of back to normal? Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. It's good to see you all. Uh, it's been a long time, and I, I, missed, I missed you all, but it's been watching the show every night. Um, so I've had you in my, in my living room. Um, you know, I would say that our our view on housing is this. You know, people are really caught up in the in the short term with high prices. The sharp appreciation in home prices, you know, caused a really strong reaction among people. The number of people saying that it's a good time to buy a house fell to the lowest level since 1982, and that was a time when mortgage rates were at 14 percent. So, you know, we look at the at at, at the housing industry. And, and think that over time, the higher home prices are going to pull in additional supply. And it's really a terrific supply and demand story at this point. On the supply side, basically, we underbuilt housing for over a decade after the great financial crisis. And that's point number one. And point number two, boomers have this tendency to want to age in place. So we know boomers, you know, there are 10,000 boomers that turn 65 every day. There's been this trend that they want to seek care at home and stay in their homes longer. So as a result, the boomer share of, of housing supply has remained really stable. And that suggests that we're going to have to build more homes. So between the two of those, you have this accumulated deficit in single family homes of about 5.5 million units and, and an accumulated deficit of about 1 million multifamily units. And then on the demand side, COVID really exposed the, the pent up demand for housing, especially among millennials. Even before COVID, more millennials were living at home than any other generation at the same age, going back to the 1940s. Then as a result of COVID, I think it created a lot of pent-up demand for, for um, you know, home ownership. And we're seeing those two play out. I think it's going to be a long-term secular trend. I don't think it's one that we saw for overnight. Joe, it's Karen. I got it. Thanks for being on. First of all, I got a question for you. As one of the most sophisticated investors on the planet, when you make this big move into housing, one, I think maybe that moves the market somewhat. But two, what are your expectations as a homeowner or giant set of homeowners of what your returns will be over the next five or 10 years in your housing investment? Sure. Well, well, thanks for the question, Karen. And, you know, the first thing I'd say is that, you know, one of the things that we have the uh, ability to do very effectively is when we notice a trend or see a trend in one area or one business, we're able to step back and think about the different ways that we can, you know, invest in that theme through other areas. So, for instance, in our real estate practice, where we are among the largest real estate owners in the world, we've had tremendous exposure to both multifamily and single family rentals. Uh, and we have for, for years and we continue to grow that. 
particularly throughout the South and the West, the so-called smile states, which I think you know continue to benefit from out migration. But then we also stepped back and thought, what are other ways that we can implement the housing theme? And we've done that through private equity, through recent acquisitions, uh, you know, among uh, uh, companies in the supply chain for housing, uh, as well as um, uh, uh, companies in, you know, from uh, that that are involved in in the um, you know installation of kitchen cabinets, hardwood floors, uh, through a company called ILG, and then another company, Chamberlain, which owns LiftMaster, which is inside your garage door. You know, garages. So we have the ability to implement that through various different ways. And each one of those is going to have a, a different uh, return profile, if you will. Uh, but from our perspective, it's about this really strong supply and demand story, a, a secular one. Uh, and, you know, really, even with the threat of higher mortgage rates, you know, there's still uh, when you look at, at, at you know, the um, debt service as a percent of your disposable personal income, we're at record lows. So even with the prospects of higher interest rates and the potential for higher mortgage rates, we still think we've got a long runway here for, for housing. And I think it's one that uh, will probably be one of the defining themes of, of this expansion. Joe, always great to speak with you. It's, it's been way too long. I know Guy likes to call you the original Jay-Z. So thanks, Jay-Z. See you next time. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Guy, I'll go to you. I know you love Jay-Z, but where would you go in the housing trade at this point? Home Depot has been a monster. You know, it obviously traded off significantly a few months ago, but it's right back to this 340 level. And there are no such thing for you technicians out there. I know Carter is watching again as triple tops. And through, through 345, it's setting up for a whole new range. So Home Depot has worked. Uh, obviously, that sell-off a couple months ago hurt, but it's right back there. So Home Depot for me, Melms. Coming up, Las Vegas Sands, earnings on deck next week. And option traders are going all in on this casino stock. We've got the action next when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Wynn, the casino operator, gaining nearly 3.5% today. And Kramer's rolling the dice on this name thanks to China. You can read all about it in the CNBC Investment Club newsletter. Sign up now at cnbc.com backslash investing club. Or just point your phone at the QR code on the side of the screen and it will take you straight there. Sticking with the casinos, Las Vegas Sands also getting a nice boost to kick off the week. The company reports earnings next week and options traders are already starting to ante up. Mike Coe joins us with the action. Hey, Mike. Hi there. Yeah, so we saw calls outpacing puts by over four to one, and we saw well above average daily call volume. Right now, the options market is implying a move of about 7.7 percent between now and a week from Friday after the company reports earnings. That's pretty close to the average over the past eight reported quarters. The activity that caught my eye was the purchase that I was seeing in the October 29th weekly 44 strike calls. Over 7,700 of those traded for about 44 cents apiece. The buyer of those calls obviously betting that the stock could exceed that $44 strike price by at least the little over 1% of the current stock price that they paid. By two weeks from this coming Friday, that would be an increase of more than 13% over the next two weeks. Tim, how are you feeling about uh, LVS? I, I'm feeling like I want to add to this trade. And, and it's mm. something that I, I think there's been plenty of exposure on the regulatory headwinds in Macau, concerns on renewals, et cetera. I think this has been as much about the transitory side of travel uh, mobility uh, around COVID, in, certainly in Macau, in China. Um, but look, let, let's face it, it's not just a Macau story. 
three, three and a half billion Marina Bay Sands in, in Singapore is something to be really excited about. Selling off of Vegas assets, four and a half billion dollars in investing in digital assets and, and even in Texas. This is a company that I, I just think, again, you know, you hit that bottom, uh, that COVID bottom about a month ago. It's traded there. It's bounced off of it. Uh, I think there's incredibly negative sentiment here. And I think uh, I think there's an opportunity. Bonwin, how about you? Like the Criterium view, Tim mentioned that $35 level is around where it bounced. Um, you know, personally, as I said, I, you know, I like DraftKings. I like Penn. I, I like a few other names. I do like this as a contrarian call. Um, in terms of Mike, I think that's a great spot. I saw that trade today actually as well. I think that's more of a trading position over the long run. I mean, I think 13% is a pretty aggressive move over two weeks. I'd probably be fading those calls. Yeah. Guy, how are you feeling about casinos? I like LBS. That both Bonwin and Tim just mentioned. Go back to, I think it was March 18, 2020. It made an interday low of 33.30. I think it closed around 36.5. So we tested that level recently. Seemingly have held it and bounced. A report, I think, on October 27th. And I think this stock just got lumped in with a lot of the Chinese names when those stocks were under pressure, probably to a certain extent unduly. So I think Tim's right to add to these positions here. All right. Mike Coe, thank you. From Washington's Action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim. Our commodity discussion certainly gets into petrochems. Lionel Bissell is a company that has been massively deleveraging over the years, is very well positioned for this next upswing, and I think we'll do it very differently than they did the last time when they overextended. Karen. Yeah, a few days ago I talked about the setup for banks not looking great going into earnings. We've pulled back a lot, specifically J.P. Morgan down almost five bucks. So my final trade, long J.P. Morgan. Tomorrow's the last day to buy it before earnings on Wednesday. Bonowin. Uh, Tan, I think today's price action told you all you needed to know in terms of short-term momentum uh, in the energy space, T-A-N. Guy? Karen, trying to curry favor with the aforementioned Jamie Dimon. Uh, I like what you did there. Alcoa, double A, Melms. All right. Thanks for watching. Fast to see you back here tomorrow. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.